0: Hey bud, come over here, I have some important information to pass, after which your presence is hereby requested. Today on the sit-down John and I will discuss whether or not Kubrick's The Killing is even a gangster film, how even he sometimes disappoints us yet never fails to surprise us, as well as classic film noir character actors and more. This promises to be a great meeting, so get in the car we're headed to the sit-down.
1: So, Chad, I'd like to ask you one question to start us off.
0: Was this a gangster film? No, and I was wondering why you chose this. Uh, And then I thought about it, and um, I like... Whether you did it intentionally or it was like you didn't think that much about it, I don't really care, because it opens up... And I'm happy about it, like the sort of range and scope of, of films that we can talk about. You know, I don't feel like we're pigeonholed with just talking about films that are st- strictly have to do with gangsters. And we did touch on this a little bit before. Sure. You know, I, I didn't personally. So I'm not, uh, I, I obviously I do think some thought went behind this. But it's basically about thieves. You know, mm-hmm. it's organized crime, though, for sure. But I think, you know, that's really all I could, you know, glean or ascertain from that was that, well, they're definitely thieves and they are organized. The only,
1: uh, the only cliche, I won't say cliche, trope, hmm. only mobster trope was at the beginning, the police officer is talking with a loan shark who's, they're talking about the money he owes and that he's got to pay. Yeah. And I'm going to get the money. And it's obvious that this one little guy can't be what's scaring the cop. There must be some kind of organization behind yeah. him that could rough him up. But that's mm-hmm. it.
0: I did think about that, and I thought that uh, it, it's not even directly stated that the guys have even affiliated with you know, the mob, so to speak. It was, um, but it was definitely implied. I didn't think it was a, a gangster film, per se, but I think it definitely fits within the or overall uh, of films that uh, have to do with w- what we're discussing, you know, almost a broader genre, if you will, for sure. At first, I didn't even think about this, but it's actually considered more of a noir film, a film noir. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, I read that it, too. Once, yeah, when and once I... I um, I started reading up on it and watching it and started watching it. And I realized that all makes sense. It's funny because I don't think of Stanley Kubrick as a noir director, but there's this one. There is, um, the film he did before this, I believe that's killer's kiss. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe it it's considered one as well. So, and of course, there's all sorts of speculation or argument, you know, as to whether noir is its own genre or no. Uh, but it generally has more to do with like a a look and feel of right. a particular film. So, yeah,
1: I haven't I haven't made up my mind on that either. It seems like I guess it depends yeah. on who you read. Some people say noir is plot. Some people say it's more of a look and character types. Mm-hmm
0: tone, mood, etc. But uh what did you think of the film? I oh, loved it. I thought it was great. I there, no, there were some things that I have a, you know, a problem with. It, it but the nuts and bolts of it was I thought it was good storytelling and I if, if someone were to ask me, I guess I I would say well, it's not one of his strongest of Kubrick's strongest films. That's like how do you say? One of Mozart's compositions wasn't his strongest. You know, where do you sort of? It's
1: still it's still worthwhile listening to it.
0: He was much younger then. Uh, he there were some obvious like, think you know transitions that could have done more smoothly. I thought that the narration was a little, I don't know, almost out of place at times.
1: Yeah, it kind of changed the feel of the film from a heist film to a true crime documentary.
0: Yeah. And I, I think I remember reading something about that, and I really didn't dig on that. But I, you know, maybe during the time, you know, someone watching it, that's maybe pretty common. Uh, I have watched other films that that have that that uh, that sort of storytelling element in it. I, I it was a little rigid for me, though. Hmm. Um, it made it personally. feel kind of like
1: an old Dragnet episode.
0: I have no problem with the with doing narration like that. I just I thought they could've somehow done a better job with it. The fight scene bugged me. I was like, Man, this is they they needed a better fight coordinator. But this is me talking about a film that was done in what, fifty six? It was elaborate, but I, I, I don't know that I don't know why they had to go there. I have
1: some notes on the, the fight scene too. So the guy who played that part was a professional wrestler,
0: a, yeah, a wrestler.
1: He's like spinning around two of the guys, and it's it's yeah. just right out of of you know professional wrestling as as we know it today. And
0: I don't know if he was playing a wrestler in the film or no, but then you on you could still argue that well he he drugged this long fight out to buy time, right? You know, but it was it, sometimes it was still a lot of hard to watch, but a lot of fight scenes in films back then more you know seem a little
1: yeah well the scene where like the the, like he knocks the two cops away and they one pulls one shirt and one pulls another side of the shirt he's got you know this big barrel hairy chest all of a sudden is on display it's like oh boy
0: yeah it's like well okay but uh, so but the the i guess the in spite of all that like there there there's some things where you can say okay he's this is still a younger director or he's developing his technique well you that's just it you can still see kubrick's technique developing and some of yeah some of it was i thought absolutely yeah brilliant in spite of all some things like that and you could really see his I don't know. I think, I, I never thought of Kubica as a noir director, but after, you know, seeing this, okay, I could see how, you know, his his attitude, his tone, uh, his sort of uh, perspective was almost, was being honed and it de- and was developing.
1: Where do you feel like you saw an
0: example of that? When Elisha Cook comes home, this is towards the end of the film, to see Marie Windsor, his wife. That's George, and I can't remember his wife's name, but, but two great noir actors. Elijah Cook, I guess, she, Marie Windsor, uh, and this is a little bit of a non-sequitur, but uh, she was, I guess, known as the queen of the B-films at the time. And then Elijah Cook had also been in a few, some big ones. I think, what was he, The, biggest sleep, the Big Sleep, or well, he was in The Maltese Falcon? I think he was in The Maltese Falcon. And, uh, of course, he was in Shane, which is the, what I remember him for most. Oh, Great I haven't seen that actor. forever. Yeah, he's he's awesome. He's what are they? Uh, Stonewall. <laughs> he's awesome. Anyway, when um, when he comes home and he's everyone else has been shot up and he looks a mess, and uh, he looks awful, which is something we might talk about later. Uh, you know, uh, but. Yeah, and he winds up shooting her. So when all this was going on, and she's trying to, like, tell him, you know, you better get out of here. So-and-so is going to be here soon. And she's trying to, like, brush him off and send him on his way. And uh, I guess about the time she realizes her boyfriend's not coming back. Mm-hmm. And, uh I, you, they cut back to Elisha Cook, and they've got a shot of him and he's getting kind of wheezy and he's losing his stability and he's, you know, cause he's bleeding. Right. And, uh, he, there's this bird cage next to him. And when all it's like, I just thought that's Kubrick and that's was brilliantly done because the, the more unstable he becomes physically, and it's already a sign of how unstable he is mentally, I guess, at that point, psychologically, but eventually he falls. The birdcage falls, it, but this birdcage is swinging with him the more, you know, and it's just, I, there's something about some, you know, shots and scenes like that that um I think, it really lends to the irony. And, of course, once he falls to the ground, the bird says something off. I can't even remember what it was. It was just like, it was sort of striking. It was definitely, you know, very, I don't know what else to say, but a huge, strong sense of irony, you know, coming through. And she dies, of course. But I did want to talk a little bit of, about Lisha Cook. Uh, great character, actor. Um, I remember, I, I've already said this, but I'll just say it again. Uh, I remember him primarily from um, Shane, and he, when he played the southerner uh, who unfortunately, you know, got sh- was shot by uh, Jack Palance's character, nefarious character. Um, I, I don't know. He just was always a fun I think, addition to a lot of these films, I believe he was in the Maltese Falcon as well, I believe, among others. Um, I'd have to, I believe he wasn't. I always confuse it with The Big Sleep. And uh, Marie Windsor, of course, uh, once again. Uh, I'm sort of in, inspired to watch more n- old noir films or old B films just to, to watch other actors like that perform. Mhm.
1: The scenes between you know, which, them were really good. Like Yeah. yeah I like the dialogue. Job. The beat between them was good. I mean, it,
0: And she's she does a great job at henpecking him.
1: Yeah, and you you, know. you really grow to dislike her a lot. Um mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. I laughed out loud during the line where he says um yeah, she was a a lady about your age, and she said, no, she may have been when you started the story, but she's probably old by now because <laughs> he's taken forever to tell the story.
0: As far as Sterling Hayden goes, I he was so great in roles where there was something. He seems perfectly okay on the surface, but further down, there's something off. There's something wrong. And you could say that about, I think, like, the character... He, and, and not just in Kubrick films or just noir films, but you could say that, like, in the character he played in this film, which mm-hmm. is generally a little more even keel than some other roles I'd seen him in. But then if you talk about Strangelove, he... You know, obviously there's some stuff going on. Uh, or if you take, for instance, uh, uh, The Godfather in parts like that. And it's hard to for me to really describe his performance other than like well he just does a damn good job a damn yeah. good job at, at doing it. And I
1: This character Johnny is nothing like McCluskey like I know no. it's 20 years later but it's like there's some stars who get success in certain roles and they just start to play that role over and over again Yeah, and sometimes that's great and sometimes it's like oh my gosh another one of these but I don't feel like he does that um, I haven't seen yeah, *Strange Love* yet. I need to catch that. But from what you describe and what I've read about it, it's obvious that it's nothing like McCluskey or, or Johnny in this film.
0: No, I wouldn't compare the characters. <laughs> you know, it's, I mentioned all these these roles because I could see a common thread in the performances. But at the same time, like you take a role like that, there's a great deal of contrast uh, in with that role, for instance, and. The the party played in you know the Godfather or again or or this film um mm-hmm. and that well, that's the mark of a great actor, yeah, I agree any great actors you know they're they're it's them they've got something to offer that's you know appeals to us to us as an audience member in one form or another, but at the same time they're different you know you're you're not looking you're not watching the same. Uh, part being played over and over. So that's something I like about it. And I, I did want to mention want to mention Colleen Gray. And it's like it which kind of brings us more into the plot. I think like how she describes herself early on in the film. This is her his girlfriend. She plays, I believe it's Faye. Mm-hmm. And um she describes she says, I'm not very smart and I'm not very pretty. And of course any any it's that's anything but true. She's probably the only really wise or relatively wise person in the film, other than the fact that she's mixed up with this guy, sure uh, and she's
1: absolutely beautiful,
0: <laughs> yeah, she's gorgeous, you know yeah. um but i that that statement in and of itself kind of tells you something about the story you're about to hear, you know you and I have seen
1: that relationship you 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 know people will describe themselves as not. You know, I'm not very pretty, or I'm not I'm not good at this or that, and it's obvious they sincerely believe it, and it's obvious to everyone else around them that it's not true.
0: In the end, she's one of the few characters that's remotely involved in this whole uh, process, which brings us to the whole Hayes Code things. I, that that actually walks away, or will walk away.
1: Johnny kept most of the results. He, she knew something illegal was going down, but she had no idea what the what the particulars were
0: even she will probably not come out of this unscathed, but it, it, hopefully at least she's not going to spend a lifetime in prison or or you know she's not dead on the floor somewhere.:
1: Johnny is probably not going to see the outside of a jail because he stole a bunch of money and a lot of people died. Yeah, I wrote down some notes about the shootout scene. There are eight shots fired, and then five people are dead.
0: You know, it seemed like three shots fired and like sixteen people died. Right. TV, when I watched it, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was like, when they panned, when he pa- it's a chilling thing. But like, I'm I'm looking yeah. at this from the eye, you know from the eyes of someone who saw Rambo at an early age, where there's just bullets everywhere, and I'm like, eight shots, five guys dead. How is that possible? Like, you know, except for George is still you know he's going to be six. Not very many shots fired, and then a lot of people. Not just wounded or mortally wounded, but out cold, dead.
0: That goes along with what I mentioned earlier. There, like the fight scene, the shootout, like for the effect, it was good. But like the whole, like that's when my suspension of disbelief got a little jarred. In little, you know, times like that.
1: It was eerie when they, when Kubrick is like moving the camera slowly over the bodies, and you kind of see the aftermath of the shootout. But also at the same time, I'm I'm thinking the same thing you were. I'm like, how did that many people die? Because I, mean, I
0: guess kudos to you for going back and actually counting the shots to, to <laughs> double check. As if the is is this even possible?
1: So one thing I did on my second yeah. watch of the movie is I wrote down. Every time the narrator gave a time, I wrote down the time and what was happening. Because my first thought when I finished it was yeah. like, there sure was a lot of cloak and dagger handing things back and forth when the whole crew also just met together in an apartment. And like, why didn't they just yeah. do it all there? And in hindsight, I realized, okay, if they wanted to do these things, there there was a certain amount of cloak and dagger they needed to do to... You know, get the weapon to the right guy, make sure that camouflage so that it could uh-huh. get in. One guy could take it in that worked at the track. And then, you know, George's character could open the door for Johnny. Johnny knew a locker to go to. Like, it made sense. The only major plot hole that I felt, why take the money back to the hotel and leave $2 million cash unguarded? Like, why did Johnny have to be the one to go back and pick up the money? Yeah, um, and why, go to the rendezvous.
0: Why, get, why take that risk? Sure. Why leave it on?
1: Un, it's unguarded. There's this. There's this. You know, guy who seems to be okay with shady activity running the place. You're gonna trust him? Like the cop already has the money. He knows where the rendezvous is. Why not just take it there? Of course, that screws up the whole timing of Johnny coming back late and missing the shootout. But. You can't stop and say, "Well, why did they do this?" You know, it's a movie. You know, there's that's going to happen.
0: I thought he put the cash in something. Maybe it was in that big mail sack the whole time until yeah. he put it in the suitcase. So I don't know. You know, yeah, I don't, the, that's the, a good question. And, and it's
1: like everything's gone off the rails by the time the suitcase comes onto the scene. Like everybody's dead. Um, he's seen George kind of you know, stagger off towards who knows where. So he, he high-tails it. He gets the suitcase that has the... But at that point, the plan is shot. So I understand maybe not thinking straight there.
0: And and maybe it was just a way to just get the cash off the streets, you know? Uh, maybe the, they assume the hotel owner doesn't really know that much.
1: In my mind, I was like, what safer place to have the stolen cash than in the back of a cop's car? Like, who's well, going to look great, for it there?
0: Yeah, I I can't argue with that one. Can't but, you know,
1: again, one. whatever. Um, yeah. It, it, it was neat how the plan came together. And when I went back through all that, I did. I felt like, eh, this, this pretty much checks out. Other than the cash thing at the end, whatever. That yeah. makes sense why they did what they did. Yeah. Um, wanted to talk real quick about Nikki's character. So, Nikki's the guy with the really cool car that, that, that shoots the horse to kind of start the diversion. Uh, you know, there's doing some target shooting when, he, when his character is introduced, and there's a scene that uh, there's a low shot up at him as he's talking, and his face is between two, cops, um, two cop-faced targets that have, like, bullet holes in them. Yeah. And on the second watching, I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's supposed to be foreshadowing the the fact that he's going to get shot by, you know, and killed by a security officer, police officer, you know, later on in the movie. What do you know? But um, his car, I thought, was really cool. Um, It is an MG-TD. I do not know the year, but I posted a picture of it on Facebook and, uh, you know. Yeah. I have some car friends who were immediately like, "Oh, it's it's
0: one of those." So, for anyone who's listening, uh, there's a cool car in this picture. Yeah, there's a something. lot of cool cars in this picture, I guess. Now, when you think about it,
1: yeah, in a lot yeah. of ways.
0: But there's a particularly cool car in this picture.
1: When Nick goes to the parking lot to to set up where he's gonna.
0: Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. James Edwards is the name of the parking attendant, the mm-hmm. the African-American actor. The scene touched on a lot of stuff because the a lot of movies yeah. in the 1950s don't touch on racial dynamics or prejudices. And like a lot, if you ask people, many people, you know, when was the golden era of the of the United States? They'll say, oh, it was the 1950s. You know, we were space program and, you know, we were, yeah, we were doing better than the Russians. And, oh, yeah, well, there was this race stuff going on, but we didn't really talk about that. And this, fi- and this film has that scene where Nick's character is trying to get rid of him. And
0: Here's the thing about that scene. I can't say whether the character he was playing was racist or no. You can, what you can say is like he was definitely, and I'll tell you why. You can say he's definitely a shady character, you know. He fits the profile, right. But the thing is, is I, I think he looked at the, the, the security officer as a, well, if you will, uh, a civilian, you know. Someone's outside, you know, the realm of what they're, they're, they're trying to do. So I think he's doing his best to keep, uh, you know, things pleasant. But he, I think he realized I've got – I think he panicked, obviously, you know, or mm-hmm. he had to figure out what he could do. What's the thing I could – something I can say or do to get this out of my guy out of my hair without me having to try to get out of my seat because I already told him I was a paraplegic. Right. And get him away from me as quickly as possible. Well, I can be a real jerk. Right. And I, I don't I, – I, like, I don't think – there was more than just racism behind what he did, and it doesn't change the fact that what he, you know, what he said was was awful and horrible to hear. Um, so maybe that in and of it, like, I, it's that, that's another that is a moment in this film where Kubrick is manages to uh, he start uh, just, that's a, just a brilliant moment because there's so many different things going on. There are, like maybe there the guy's really a racist. Maybe he isn't. But I'm going to say something awful to this person just to get him to walk the other way. And so in a way, like I, I'm almost feeling bad for this person. Sure. Because I feel like he had to do something that he might not have otherwise. Even though he's about to commit a crime, Like maybe he just wouldn't have been a jerk to this security officer.
1: And the way the security officer responds after that, you know, after he says what he says... I'm not going to do a direct quote. He calls him the N word, and it's very jarring, and it's 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 sad. Um, but the way he responds is kind of this: "Oh, you know, okay, yeah. that's the, that's was, the role it, you want me to play. All right, we'll do this." Like it really pulled back the the covers. I feel like on what was going on in a lot of times. Yeah that that we tend to think of the 1950s as this great time where everyone got along, and it's like, well, the, you know, the 60s mm. came along right after that, sure. and it was pretty obvious something wasn't right. <laughs> that scene stuck with me. A, it was I think, a tough maybe. scene to
0: watch. What's intriguing about it is again, I, just so many different things going on. Like, up for the from the security guard standpoint, he's thinking, "Hey, this guy is white, and he's not being a jerk to me, right?" Oh, he was in the war, also. Okay, no problem. Hey, you know what, buddy? Yeah, go on through. I don't, I don't mind. You know, and he's trying yeah. to help him out, trying to do their. In it was an unfortunate upshot. Uh, of the situation what happened but it wound up of course it wound up working against uh, yeah, Nick Carrier's uh, Nick. Character.
1: Nick doesn't make it out alive no
0: um,
1: we think about and of course
0: there's the whole irony thing again with the horseshoe that gets caught in the tire right
1: I mean he wasn't going anywhere anyway but
0: he yeah. might have gotten away but he drove over the horseshoe and it blew his tire
1: oh uh, yeah and, I guess I hadn't right? thought about Didn't it that it? way yeah but yeah yeah he does I thought the, he'd already the, been shot at that point, but yeah.
0: Yeah, the horseshoe, I should mention, uh, was something that the security guard offered to Nick for good luck because he was supposedly betting on this horse. And he finally tells him, hey, get out of here. ba da, 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 da. Offends no. him. He throws the horseshoe down on the ground. So when Carrie's or Nick's trying to back out, he rolls right over the horseshoe, though it turns up and blows his tire.
1: Yep, and then the
0: the security guard takes care of Nick. It's a very noir thing to happen, and it's also very, it's a little Kubrick-in. So I, is that a word? I don't think it's Kubrick-esque, is it? I don't know what you call it. (laughs) You can see his sense of irony really starting to develop. And I think he took it to, like he took it, Kubrick, after this film he took that sort of satire Really, it became satire in a larger sense, but it, that sense of irony, like it, it, blew it up on a a whole new level. You know, it uh, it's like a noir film noir proportion of irony, there, and then there's a you know Kubrick's proportion of irony, which is even bigger to me. And I don't know, if, you know what I mean? It's.
1: I think it's interesting that. Out of all the great scenes in this film and the great shots, we've spent the most amount of time talking about the scene between Nick and the parking attendant.
0: Pivotal moment. So I guess it makes sense. You'd talked up earlier about either before or after we started recording or before we was, I don't remember, but the amount of blood. I was, maybe I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. Sure. That. So,
1: Seeing Nick's character get shot, he does the typical thing that you often see in old movies. He he grabs at his back or wherever it is that he's been shot, and he falls over. It's like oh, and he, and it's really not that much different than what you would see in the Great Train Robbery, um, where it's like this just kind of this over the top death scene, and there's no blood. It's just you fall over, and I remember thinking. That same type of death scene happens in 1942 with Casablanca. Towards the beginning, there's some guys who try and run away from the French police and uh, the gendarmes, if I remember correctly. And uh, they get shot and they just kind of hold their backs and fall over, but there's no blood. So, from 1942 to 1956, there's no change. And then four years after that, there's the shower scene in Psycho that Hitchcock does. And we see not only is someone dying and there's blood, but that's not a gun. It's a, it's a knife and it's not a gangster. It's a woman. Um, it's, it's really upping, you know, what would be acceptable for a mainstream audience to watch. And then in 1980, at this point we're, you know, 24 years later, Stanley Kubrick releases The Shining and that's first of all in color, and has hallways of blood in it, like it mm-hmm. literally, literally, literal hallways of blood that like wash over the camera. I guess that the scene in The Shining with all that blood is not violent; it's just it's it's horrifying, but it's not violent. There's no one getting hurt. When that film, I think it's scene.
0: horrifying in the sense that it's I think indicative of of the violence that it you know it transpired in the past at that hotel sure um, sure uh, it, we, least, we could go off on a huge tangent on yeah, the yeah at least I, I guess i don't remember a lot of blood in the in this film there isn't really except the scene the last scene with george yeah he's and got a, it he, his,
1: he looks like he almost has a bullet hole in his face
0: so i saw some interview with elisha cook jr that and they were talking about that and they actually like the makeup artist's they had gone to great extent, evidently. And you can't see a whole lot of it. Of course, I didn't see, a, I didn't have a great copy of this movie and I want to get, a nice, watch a nice, I'd love to see mm. it on the big screen. Sure. Uh, you know, maybe one time, sometime I'll get lucky. But they had like gone to great extent, you know, to, uh, and into great detail in like putting, you know, the shot in his face. And I I know, I, re, I don't, I recall seeing him as being rather bloodied from the actual um, from the previous altercation, right? And I don't, and he shot his wife, and there wasn't a lot of blood in that, but you saw the results of what had happened to to him. And I don't know how much blood there really needed to be on him. What I did know is that like he looked awful.
1: Yeah, he looked terrible.
0: Yeah, the effect, whether they were using fake blood or they was just had him with so many, you know, shot holes in him that it looked all, that bad. It, 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 either way, it, it, the effect was the same.
1: He, he's losing blood. He's been shot. And he's also dealing with the ultimate betrayal of his wife, who he knows doesn't love him, probably yeah. has cheated on him, but betrayed him to that point. Because yeah. he was like, I was going to give all the money to you anyway. Like, you didn't have mm-hmm. to take it. You know, by robbery, I was going
0: to... What else was he's going to spend you know, it on? It, like, yeah, Sterling Hayden explained that to her earlier on in the film. When they catch her eavesdropping.
1: It's interesting what the people are in... Johnny's character says, you know, none of these guys are professional criminals, but they all have a little larceny in their blood. Which I yeah. thought was a really interesting way to talk about.
0: Or, you know, maybe they have actual motives. Like a, a, his older... His sort of mentor is his older... Friend. Yeah. Well, the uh, the cop, a- I, wrote,
1: I wrote this down. The cop wants the money to pay off his debt to the loan mm-hmm. shark. Yeah. The bartender has a sick wife that he wants to, you know, get good medical care for. At least that's what he's saying. Right. And there's nothing that he does to make you think otherwise. George wants his wife to love him. He just wants to make money so that his wife will respect him. Well, Marvin is the older guy. I guess he just wants to help Johnny. I want to get back to the interaction between Marvin and Johnny because there's some awkward stuff there. And then Johnny wants to get rich and marry his girlfriend because he has that line at the beginning like, hey, they could put you away for just as long for stealing $10 or a million dollars. You might as well go for a million. Like he's, he's in it for money and uh, to I'm assuming marry his girlfriend. So most likely, yeah, for all No one know. seems to be in it for out and out greed. And uh doesn't doesn't work out well for anybody. But again, this is the classic lesson like
0: maybe ultimately I I, yeah, I could see that point. I I think greed in some cases may have got people into the position they're now in in this Sure, story. sure. Uh, so I can't I can't separate it from that issue, but I could I can certainly see why you're saying that. Yeah. You know, there's there other. There are other reasons, you know, that have emerged. Yeah. That still didn't pay off in the end.
1: I don't think that the you know the haze code saying the bad guys can't get away with it is necessarily needed here because I can imagine you know no. you got four four or five guys who don't really know what they're doing in the crime world try to pull off a heist. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to go bad. Yeah george's you know the character george he's also he's also that guy that you see in a lot of mob movies who is like where's my share you know how come everything goes according to plan until it's time to divvy up the money yeah that that guy is always around who just can't he just can't wait to get his hands on the loot and starts to bug the crap out of everybody Mm -hmm. so i kind of wonder you know had the story taken an alternate turn what would have happened to him when johnny shows up and Felicia gets mouthy with him for being 20 minutes late. So, there's a scene where Johnny goes in to the old guy, his whose character's name is Marvin Unger. This is before all the heist goes down. He goes in and he wakes the guy up and he's kind of sitting on the edge of his bed. And it's an awkward scene from the standpoint of... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Marvin's like trying to say, "Hey, maybe we should just run away together," and it sounds a lot uh, like yeah, the conversation a that
0: for a moment. Yeah,
1: it sounds like the same conversation that Johnny had with his girlfriend, you know, sooner. And who shows up to break up the kiss? Marvin does, and and he's like, "Hey, maybe we could." He literally says, "Let's go away, just the two of us," and you know, maybe you're getting married to the wrong person, and then. Yeah. Johnny kind of ruffles his hair and and then he leaves. And then Marvin's not supposed to show up anymore after that. And yet he gets drunk and shows up at the track anyway, almost like a jilted lover. It was... was
0: Once you learn a... About Kubrick's body of work, I mean, you—I you, you, wouldn't put it past him. to yeah, to insinuate it, it, something. you know, that it's there was
1: not a, that it's—it's—it's it's, it's shocking or, or, yeah. or its just it's nineteen—it's a movie in nineteen fifty-six, and it was right. kind of like, you know, if it's standing out to me coming from what I'm from what you know society that we have today, that's much more accepting. What must that have been like to the audience in nineteen fifty-six?
0: you know I, I i'm sure it was eye opening for some and i think it probably went right over others because it's not necessarily yeah a lot of
1: people didn't see it like it did terribly yeah, at the box office it, i don't
0: it it, it it may not have like with the you know the higher ups you know some executives or or with critics you know uh, they may not have dug that either they may have been well aware of it and they may not have dug that for it go ahead i'm sorry yeah
1: i just it's it's interesting that it's another example of a movie that is well it's highly respected now yeah um i thought when i suggested this movie that i was kind of picking something obscure that would kind of be cool but i'm like the killing is not obscure by people who who really get into film especially noir and and I should have known that anything with Kubrick's name on it would have been, you know, gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah.
1: There's a lot of people who talk about this movie, but it didn't do well at the time, but it did,
0: it, you know, it's, it's well-regarded now. And the funny thing, I didn't even really catch that till the second time I watched it. And, uh, of course, it, speaking about it reminds me of uh, Spartacus and the s- whole snails and oysters scene. Which brings us to Kubrick. Um and his sort of, you know, I, I've watched a number of documentaries about him, I've watched a good number of his films, and he's, he's one of my favorite, if not my favorite director, one of my faves. He likes to grapple with our ideals of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable in regards to sex and violence. It's hard to say because, like to, back then, our gen- generally the sensibilities about what is you know what was acceptable in terms of sex and violence it was it was probably safe to say a little different sure. than what it is now or was it maybe we were just more in denial about what you know those sorts of and I, and, and th- th- that is a whole obviously we could take this in a completely different direction you know
1: well we're gonna the, see. You know when when we get to pre-hays code films which are generally between hays code came around had been around for several years before it was actually enforced so from like 1930 1934 the hays code is around but no one's really checking or enforcing mm-hmm. and there are a number of elements um that are th- there's violence towards women yeah there's what are, what are obvious homosexual relationships between characters that you know they don't spend a lot of time dwelling on it but it's obviously there yeah. and then the Hayes code comes along in 1934 1935 and they really start enforcing it, and you don't see any of that stuff again for a long yeah. time so it's interesting in 1956 that there's so many ways that that scene those scenes could have been shot that would not have raised that question at all like they could have been sitting at a coffee table but sure. he comes into his sure. room. He sure. wakes him up. He ruffles his hair. They talk about.
0: I guess I'm going to say what I I really didn't want to say earlier. He he has his way of dealing with dysfunction, or what we perceive as dysfunction, or what he perceived as dysfunction. And I don't, you know, I guess I'm not gonna, I'm not sitting here trying to say, so, oh, were you saying, you know, there were homosexual tendencies between these two characters that. Makes it just you know the relationship dysfunctional or this or that. I'm not getting get. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like just dealing with the issue. Maybe the dysfunction has to do with the fact that they they didn't couldn't even really talk about it. I don't yeah. know. The point is he was grappling with these issues that people really uh, people really didn't want to talk about.
1: It's amazing what is in a film about robbing money from a horse you know from a racetrack and in hindsight it should have been obvious when you sit down in front of a kubrick film that that's what you're going to get that he's he's going to tell you a coherent story but he's also going to you know some things are going to stick in your brain that you're going to like wait a second and you're going to think about and ruminate over for days to come which is the mark of a great film and a great filmmaker
0: kubrick has a way of grappling with difficult subject matter that we as an audience generally don't want to deal with sure he's good at that i I, that's maybe one of the best things about kubrick whatever it is you don't want to talk about okay you don't have to talk about it just sit down and let's watch this movie yeah and i'll do the talking and you won't even know i've said it till a little later
1: it's too late. All of a sudden, it's the it's the end of a war film, and it's the last scene of Full Metal Jacket.
0: Exactly, like,
1: the, and you're like, you look, oh gosh.
0: Yeah, and you look. You take a film like um, Full Metal Jacket, or Paths of Glory, maybe is an even better example. Well, it's satire and irony at its best, like it, the, the complete absurdity of a given situation. You know, it's just. It's insane, but you have all these sane, quote-unquote, people, you know, moving around, talking, interacting with one another within the context of this insane situation. So you have to ask yourself, how did they even get here in the first place? But, like, I can't tell you, really. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, but the fact is, is, like, he approaches stories in his films in, in that way, like... He, he maybe that's for me like one of the great things about Kubrick is his ability to to do that. Something else I wanted to talk about the robbery and the costume, the uh, the disguise it's creepy looking. he uses in the robbery. Yeah, you want you want to talk about that a little bit, John? Well, first
1: off, most of the images of the film, like if you do an image search for The Killing yep. 1956, you're probably going to see the the, ma- the, the mask, yeah. you know, Sterling Hayden with, the, with kind of a clown mask on. And if you look at the, the poster of the film, a lot of the ones I've seen, the one sheet I guess it's called, you've got Sterling Hayden in the foreground, uh, with his hat on looking cool. But in the background, you have him standing with the, with the shotgun
0: and the, and the, uh, yeah.
1: And, the and mask this is on. like,
0: um, yeah. And, um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, we're talking about, it's like a clown mask or a hobo mask. Yeah.
1: It's a hobo mask. That's y- a good know, point.
0: You know, which a i probably if you went to see the circus back then there's a lot of clowns that look like hobos sure. it's probably fairly safe to say and even now that's maybe the case um, he doesn't wear it for very long this is no but there is something disturbing about this image. yeah you know um, something's about I, this, to go
1: down like this is the time where i may actually have to shoot somebody and no one can see my face while i'm well, I've got the gun on people.
0: Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, he's sort of a clown. He's sort of a drifter. Yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. Uh, he is a bit it, of a hobo. It
0: goes, it fits his character. It's like, I'm looking at one one poster, I guess, or one sheet or whatever. And it's it's showing this clown, probably a similar image of what you were talking about earlier. And he almost looks like Freddy Krueger. Yes. That's how creepy this, this thing is. And it just like this is one of those moments where like, this is not only noir, but this is also Kubrick. This is Kubrick saying, "I can crush this, so to speak. I can nail this genre." I or, you know, and like I said again, he was young. There's there's some things that it, like I think it, you know, were. It's not an unflawed picture. Sure. There are flaws in this picture. When he but, comes out of but, the uh, this this is brilliant. Is. When he
1: comes out of the locker room. And he's standing in the hallway before he goes into the counting room. there's that light that's right above him, and the the shadow on his face and how the exaggerated features of the of the mask causes
0: it's just so yeah
1: i mean i'm not I'm not trying to talk about it to sound like some know it all schmuck it really is a an awesome shot
0: there's just something about the look on i don't know if it's because of the way i don't know if they they bought this mask if they designed the mask. If they, if if it's just a way it lays, you know, rests on on Sterling Hayden's face that makes it so off. There's something off about it. But that's the sort of thing that Kubrick. Thinking about
1: this now, I'm starting to understand why the money goes back to the hotel and that he's the one who's going to bring it to the rendezvous because he's the guy who's wearing the mask who's holding the gun if people need to get killed? Johnny's still going to be the one to do it. He's the one who's who's yeah. committing the biggest part of the crime and dang it, if I say the money's right. going to go to the hotel or the motel later, that's right. what's going to happen. If
0: something's going to go wrong, I'm going to have the money.
1: I want to talk some about the end of the film. Um there was no doubt that the suitcase was going to spill open and spill money everywhere
0: you know i knew that way ahead of time because i saw a documentary where they talked about that film and they showed that happening so i knew that was going to happen
1: as soon as uh they show the scene with the he's trying to close it and the he tests the lock and it pops right open i'm like yeah well that's coming back
0: i didn't even think about those things because i already knew it was going to happen so in i that was my spoiler uh and i if i hadn't seen that i know i wish i hadn't seen it before because maybe it would have told me something ahead of time yeah that was a little bit of good foreshadowing going on there
1: at the time i'm like why isn't he planning better why did he have such a crappy and then i reminded myself oh because this is not how the plan was supposed to go down you know he probably had a much you know, he didn't think he was going to be taking all two million he thought he was going to be taking just his share
0: he was more on the reacting to you know unforeseen circumstances at that point. well you can
1: see he starts to lose it even before things go down because he gets stuck in traffic he's behind schedule and he tries to go into the wrong apartment like he he tries to unlock the door oh yeah 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 and they're like the person's like hey you know what is it and i'm like oh gosh did somebody you know take Get in there already? Is is it you know? Is the game up? And then the he's plot's like, "Oh, unraveling,"
0: the- and so is he. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But then he's like, "Oh, he's at the wrong one." And I was like, "Oh and man, it's that's weird." Like, yeah,
0: it's good that you mentioned things like that because, like, watching it, it was like, okay, whatever. On the surface, it seems arbitrary and why, but that that's actually good character development. You know? Yeah. He's he's right starting
1: there. to to lose it, and he at that point, like once he's seen, you know. Um, George comes out all bloodied. He assumes everybody else is shot. Like, at that point, I forgive the bad decisions because he's freaked at this point. He's like, now there's a real chance I'm not going to get away with this. And I'm going to go to jail Mm -hmm. when I'm this close. Like, we got the money. It's in my my bag right here. And then it's probably still going to go to crap. Yeah. The last scene, well, not the last scene, but the scene where the dog runs out. The cart has to swerve to avoid it, his luggage falls off, breaks open. It's incredibly reminiscent of Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is very similar film in a lot of respects. Well it's, yeah. it's, it's, that's everyone calm down. It's not actually a similar film. It has a similar ending.
0: It's nothing like it <laughs> <Yeah>. at all. <laughs> What do you think about this, the final shot in the film?
1: I think audiences in 1956 probably really dug it or in, in the time after that. For me, it was a little, it reminded me of uh, Dragnet. It was just kind of, and I don't know why, I can't point to a specific Dragnet episode. No, I
0: haven't episode. seen much of dra- I never watched a lot of it. Oh my gosh, my dad really is a, is
1: a cop, was a, was a cop. Uh, he's retired now. And I, boy. Yeah. I saw a ton of Adam 12 and Dragnet as a kid. I can tell you that.
0: I I liked it. I I I um I liked the final shot on him. It, it was fitting. It was well composed. Yeah,
1: I I, I liked the final yeah. shot on Johnny kind of just like saying, you know, what's the difference? Like I am screwed. Yeah. Da, da, da. I would have liked it had it ended there. And I'm I'm being a schmuck even nitpicking on this. But then cutting back mm-hmm. to the two cops walking forward again. Like, I feel like it was kind of like, you know, banging me on the head. Like, he's not going to get away. And it's like, yeah. It's like, yeah, I, I got that. He's already given up.
0: I don't know. I guess I felt like they had to finish it some way. But at least I didn't, they didn't like, okay, actually show him getting arrested. Actually show him getting, you know, getting booked. Actually show him in jail and and then end it, you know, which is... There was no point, you know. At the, so I guess I appreciated the shot for that.
1: I was thinking of, and this is going to be a weird thing to bring up, but I think it was the end of Bruce Lee's film Fist of Fury. He's getting let out to, to the cops. <laughs> He's going to be arrested or whatever, and he just says screw it and just runs towards the, the camera and, like, jumps into this big kick, and you hear a bunch of guns go off. But it's frozen on him in the air. You just hear.
0: oh yeah, yeah when he creams ah yeah he gives that. So yeah. it
1: was kind of okay. like I, I like that ending. Kind of I'm sorry, it's almost blasphemous to to conflate those two.
0: <laughs> hey, how about that Sterling Hayden? He packs a wallop, doesn't he? <laughs> you know, all in all, I have to say, you know, it was it was a good little film good movie.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm glad we watched it. It um it's not totally a gangster film, but it's it's no. got that element it, regardless. I'm glad we watched it and I'm glad we talked about it. My initial impression was wrong. My first thought was I can see why it was a big deal in 1956. Um yeah. But tastes have changed, audiences have changed since then. I can appreciate it. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But then I thought, I kept thinking about it, like some of the scenes that we talked about, and then I thought, well, um, my first impressions were wrong because it, it wasn't well-received in 1956. It didn't make a lot of money. I got a lot more out of it the second time we saw it, and I've certainly gotten more out of it now. Like, I want to watch it again now after we've talked about it.
0: You know, that's the thing about a Kubrick film, like something you might point out as a flaw initially. Later you realize... There's a reason for it being there.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sit-Down. Next time we'll talk about one of the most influential gangster films of all time, the original Scarface from 1932. We'll see you then at the sit down.